Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and what you need to do. G'day, Nina. How are you? Good. Thanks, Andrew. How are you? Another chaotic week, eh? Matt, no. come back to work. <laughs> yeah, I feel like the weather's been reflective on my <laughs> <week>. <laughs> It has been, hasn't it? Well, look, funny, quiet times on the actual cases front, hasn't it? Yeah, not a lot of news items this week. I guess there's two themes that are coming through, and that is we continue to struggle with the fragmentation of legislation because we're a federation. So in every part of our world, except employment law, although there's some outliers in Western Australia and Queensland, employment law is very stable. When we look at safety law, when we look at workers' compensation, yeah. when we look at discrimination. It's a mess. Yeah. Everyone when, does their own thing. If what Nina and I do goes across around about 70 pieces of legislation, you know, surveillance law, all those things are different in every state, which is is foolish because we might be a federation, but we're actually, like, we're a national firm. So we have policies that try and embrace each jurisdiction. Yeah. So there's that fragmentation going on, which is a political issue, which is a pain in the ass for everybody, and I understand that. But what we're also starting to see is the emergent trends of business and risk starting to penetrate into established areas of employment law. So what we thought we'd do today is a little bit of both. We'd yeah. talk about trying to put an arms around the fragmentation of legislation and secondly, look at emergent trends in some litigation that's arising and how... I think, and Nina thinks, this is going to change the way people approach something which seems quite stable, like employment law, but employment law is starting to go sideways as well. So probably the best way is to kick over to you, Nina, and talk about the new push for harmonised industrial manslaughter. I thought there was something happening a while ago. (laughs) When we look across the states and jurisdictions at the moment, we've got Victoria, Queensland, Queensland, Northern Territory, ACT, WA, South Australia, says yes, Tasmania has disappeared off the bottom of Australia and is refusing to talk about and it. New South Wales not. And New South Wales has said absolutely no. And well, we'll probably see there about, looks like they're about to lose Liberal government there, so it's quite possible that will change in the foreseeable future yeah. as well. What's happening there? So this week the unions have been pushing all of the governments around Australia to introduce harmonised workplace manslaughter laws, and the government have actually agreed they're going to change the Model Work Health and Safety Acts to include the offence of workplace manslaughter with, I think, the highest penalties outside of Victoria. So it will be $18 million. Oh, except for Northern Territory, which is life in prison. I just thought No, no, no. Oh, yeah. No, no. <laughs> penalties, $18 million for body corporates and 20 years imprisonment for individuals. It's going to be based around, yeah, so the same elements as workplace manslaughter, but I think it's a huge step that they've all agreed to now put it in. And states like New South Wales, who for the longest time have said, no, we're not going to introduce this. It's now happening. Yeah, and look, the other part is the clarity. Two things which will be good about that is there are two distinct definitions of what are industrial manslaughter. So there's the gross negligence test, which, which is, is the, the one, one that they're going to apply. Which is going to adopt, and there's one that sits there in Victoria, which is a bit of everything. Yeah. So that, <laughs> that'll be good for all of us. And that actually <laughs> means there is a nationalised tariff. So there's clarity when the decision happens in one jurisdiction, it affects all jurisdictions. The other thing which it'll be interesting to see. The definition of at the moment in two states the definition of officer is broader than the corporation's law yeah. definition of officer that exists for the whole of the OHS legislation which means it's a person of influence so that means if a senior supervisor has a capacity to influence the safety on a particular site 
for the purpose of Queensland and Victoria, they are potentially officers. I don't think anyone would prosecute them, but it's a bad piece of drafting. Yeah. So what I hope happens is drawing back to that officer liability we understand as somebody who is a controlling mind of the business, um, we get clarity over definition and clarity over penalty, and then all our job as lawyers will be much easier yeah. and you as businesses to actually comply. So I think it's exciting. Yeah, look, it causes so much confusion, even the fact that some places call industrial manslaughter versus workplace manslaughter, we get questions about it all the time. So yeah. great step in the right direction. And look, we've already got pretty strong character, although there's, again, difference between Victoria and other states on reckless endangerment. But if this could trickle down <laughs> throughout the rest of the legislation, it would be just wonderful. All right, let's go on to the next case. And this is a case which is yet to happen. I think is the best way to describe it. I know this no, is no, no, there's no, something no. to hate that. <laughs> <Yeah. I'm not. laughs> so, yeah, this one is, look, I don't think it's a particularly fascinating case. It's a common thing that happens. Is it just because there's not many cases? No. I think <laughs> it, look, I picked this one. Andrew's yeah. giving me shit because I picked it. But essentially it was just a union dispute around overtime and reasonable additional hours for a radiologist. Can I just say it's interesting. You know, a radiologist <laughs> earns around $700,000 a year and we're talking about overtime. I just want to say that, all right? Well, they're covered under your award. They're covered under the Health Services and Professionals Award, which is has a really wide scope. I think, yeah, even dentists and stuff are covered. Anyways, besides the point, what's interesting is under the award, there is a very clear clause that says if you are a part-time employee, which employee was, you have to stipulate in writing what are their set hours and set days of work. So you can't just say you're going to work 20 hours per week. You have to say you're going to work 20 hours on the hours are going to be in these days from start and end. That clause is replicated in every single award and in most enterprise agreements now. And yet, once again, this employer said, no, nah, I'm not going to apply this. And do you know what his argument was? The radiologist was employed before 2010 when the oh, award okay. came in, so it's not applicable. Made absolutely no sense. Particularly seeing as the clause existed before the exactly. 2010 award in the prior one. absolutely no <laughs> sense. But... What's really interesting is they actually varied the radiologist's contract twice through written agreement and said, look, we're going to change your hours. This is when overtime is payable. Anytime worked over, I think she was working 45 hours per fortnight. And they said, well, we'll only pay you overtime if it's more than 37.5 hours per week or more than 7.6 hours per day. But if you work beyond what the written agreement is, we just can pay you base hourly rate. So they unilaterally just decided that was the rule and how they're going to apply the award, yep. which obviously the commission said, no, this is absolutely wrong and basically flagged that they'd be up for civil penalties for breaching the award. I think was that pretty critical, the HR manager in the middle of it. Yeah, <laughs> I think, yeah, it was pretty terrible. Unfortunately, it was only a dispute decision, so there was no finding. No, they made recommendations. Yes. And so, by the way, during a dispute, if... Uh, the commissioner makes a recommendation and you fail to take that on. Pretty serious consequences, yeah. okay, because that's an indication of a decision that's been made. Yep. Don't do it. The matter proceeds to trial <laughs> and you <laughs> breach the re recommendation. Basically just gives that case and says, well, yeah. the commissioner's already failed. And what happens is you just take that decision when they fail and you go straight to the federal court and that's yeah. where the civil penalties risk comes. Which is what the union is considering. But the point of this case is 
it's very common and we see it a lot for employers to say, look, part-time employees, they know they're going to do this amount of work. It's fine. If they do a bit more, it's reasonable additional hours so overtime's not payable. They're actually separate things. Under the Fair Work Act, you can have employees working reasonable additional hours, but under awards and most industrial instruments, overtime is payable for those reasonable additional hours. And if you have this Well, let's be clear about it. Part-time refers to a period of hours which someone yeah. permanently undertakes. Yes. If a person works in excess of those, those then hours. Then it's payable. Then it triggers overtime. Yeah. The question of reasonable additional hours is whether it's burdensome and unreasonable yeah. and they shouldn't in have the to do it. In the circumstances, yeah. Yeah, it's got nothing to do with payment at all. So a really good case that just shows how when someone reads an award upside down, they don't yeah. do well at it. Yeah. And it's worth reading all of an award, not just sections of it. And I think what yeah, this case exactly. shows is without reading the mind of the HR manager, and I think that would be difficult, is to say they've gone to overtime and overtime is payable after 37.5 hours. Yeah. And they've said, okay, well, that's right because you're a part-time person. Once you get up to there, then you pay it. So I know this is dumb and this is perhaps the dumbest case you've ever put on this no. show and it's just to keep me entertained to know that, but it shows what happens when you don't read in a world properly. And it is a point of focus for unions now. We're seeing more and more disputes about what constitutes reasonable additional hours, particularly in terms of psychological hazards, but also focusing on overtime because this is probably the biggest area where there are underpayment claims and it is a foot in the door for them to say, look, we've had a win for the employees. So please just be careful with this. It's a really easy thing to fix and a good way to get the union off your back. All right, let's go on to the next case, which is the one I thought we were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> All right, right. Say open <laughs> this is a case that hasn't been heard, so yeah. we'll be careful about it. It's a case about the CBA and it's about a transfer of employment between CBA and a new employer of the financial services people, okay, so the people advising on financial services. Interesting case yeah. because it brings to life the issue of when business transfers or sells part of a business to another, then you're transferring an employee is it like for like what the person's being transferred? Because if it's not, then it triggers a redundancy. And in this case, as I understand, Nina, and to the extent that we know the facts, there was something actually in the contract that said it has to be like for like. Yeah, so that he couldn't be redeployed into a lesser role. It was yeah. a contractual. He's contract. running an argument as a financial planner, which is meant to, which alleges $170,000 plus in damage, where he says, look, there's a couple of things about this which aren't. One, I, I lose my opportunities of future promotion because I've gone to an organisation that isn't the same size. Yeah. Don't, I can't answer that question. Yeah. Then we get into the interesting stuff, though. Yeah, but he also said about loss of bonus opportunities because yes. he wouldn't be as front-facing. So we should say it's transferring from a role. He's doing the same duties, but the new role is completely remote. So he'll be working completely well, that's, that's, remote. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So the, the brief, we talked about employment law being infected by other other types of law. We've seen it gradually through adverse action and discrimination and safety through the raising of complaints. Mm. But nothing has been quite as interesting as this case. I don't think it's going to run, but we is he says, look, when I work from home, how am I going to get the bonuses when I'm working virtually? I'm not front-facing. And actually, I don't think working from home is an entirely safe environment. Now, he's raised it. And as Nina and I were chatting before, yeah. this is not going to be the first time this issue is raised in relation to termination or redundancy because 
there is an abundance of evidence now saying that working permanently from home is not potentially a safe thing and has psychological risks associated with it. You've got the emergence of psychological hazard regulations and codes, talking about remote work as being one of the primary hazards. Yeah, especially because of isolation, which is what he raised. Yeah, so we've got a really interesting process, which is when I go through the redeployment stage, if I don't undertake a risk assessment in relation to working permanently from home, and I don't provide the controls in the transferring employer, then I don't think the consultation's been complete. Yeah, and also the employer can't say it's a reasonable redeployment option because they don't know if it's no, reasonable or not. No, they don't. So it is it by what happens is you have a per se redundancy because you have a gap in the triggers that allow you to go trigger like by like, yeah. it's reasonable. All the things that the Fair Work Act, all the controlling EBAs and awards beneath it require. So psychological hazards has come in. Now, it's fascinating because I don't think they're going to run as aggressively. No, it's as, definitely going to settle. Yeah, as Nina yeah. and I are talking about it. But I can see good plaintiff's law firms starting to say, look, there's a gap in your transfer process. You fail to do these assessments, therefore it falls over, therefore you must pay the redundancy. Yeah. And you can't get out of jail. You can't go and recreate it afterwards because no. once it's failed, it's failed. So I think when we talk about transferring employees from a non-virtual environment to a virtual environment, we go straight to the codes and regulations that say it's a major psychological hazard, therefore we must do the risk assessment and therefore in any transferring of role, we must contemplate the changes that prevent isolation, that make the workplace physically safe, psychologically safe. And if you can't do that, then I'm afraid it's a termination. Yeah, I think in this case, had they done the risk assessment, they probably would have been okay. The obligation of controls would have been on the new employer, but the fact that they haven't even contemplated, it gives them a massive gap in their progress. Yeah. Anyway, we thought we'd raise it. We won't talk yeah, about it too, too deeply because, <laughs> A, it, hasn't, it really hasn't been decided. giving him arguments on how to that, That's case. all right. Let's jump on to our, our next thing, which is the, the major theme for today. We're only raising this because there was a recent case which... Oh, terrible, terrible case. Which I, I won't name because I'll get into trouble. I think we should name it because it's, it's just bad. It was an appeal case. Yeah, it's a case that went before the Victorian Supreme Court and raced into a VCAT decision where a paltry sum was awarded for some gross sexual harassment, which was a touching sexual harassment. So in <laughs> technology... Sounds weird. Yeah, I know. In, in legal terms, you always divide sexual harassment between non-touch sexual harassment and touch sexual harassment. This was gross. This was grabbing bums. It yeah, was, so I think it was like slapping on the butt, grabbing her by the shoulder, giving her shoulder massages, things like that. But it wasn't like he was trying to really get in her pants. He was just... An inappropriate manager. I think it wasn't directed That's in that right. way. It was a different type, which factored into VCAT's decision making. $13,000. No, $10,000. $10,000. And the member said, oh, she didn't deserve more significant damages because it wasn't as overt as other cases. That was her words. Yeah. Ridiculous. Appalling, really. Anyway, I went before Michael McDonald in oh. for appeal, who's uh, in the Supreme Court and heads the employment list, a really competent, highly skilled industrial lawyer before he became a judge. And he quite rightly just looked at it and said, actually, you've ignored the evidence that actually sits there. You've ignored all the tariffs that sit around what are damages. You've brushed away aggravated damages and special damages and you shouldn't have. And I'm going to send it back for someone to look at. The reason we raise it is it's pretty hard to believe that someone at VCAT can still not understand properly what sexual harassment is. Yeah. And 
not understand what that means. And so I thought it's worth just saying, look, sexual harassment is unwelcome sexual advances, unwelcome requests for sexual favours or other unwelcome conduct of a sexual nature which makes that person feel offended, humiliated and intimidated where a reasonable person would anticipate that reaction in the circumstance. That's what it is. Yeah. So touching someone in that manner of any sex is sexual harassment. Yeah. I think what's really scary is the approach that VCAT took is kind of the approach we see sometimes from employers where they only characterise sexual harassment as the really significant acts on the spectrum. So yeah. something very disgusting. But or you're attempting to kiss yes. Yeah, anything. it's anything that fits within your definition. And I think what Michael McDonald said that was really good was you're not supposed to focus on the objective seriousness of the act. It's actually focused on the impact on the victim. That's right. Which is what all the other cases say. And I think that's also how employers should be looking at it. If someone raises a complaint and you deem it's not that serious but it's still sexual harassment, you have to look at it from the lens of how is it impacting your employee, not from you personally, how you deem it to yeah, be. Yeah, it's not your lens. Yeah. And, look, I, I think for help, everyone should understand and they should go and download it. The uh, Human Rights Commission has a code of conduct mm-hmm. on it. It's very helpful. Code of conduct, um, remember a couple of safety prosecutions have been around sexual harassment. That code of conduct references what is reasonably practical for an employer to do, including yeah. the state of knowledge you've got to have. So in any policy or procedure, you should refer to that code of conduct as being a source of knowledge on it. So that's the first thing. I thought I'd talk to you about a few cases which highlight how bad this case actually was. Kirkhoff's is a Victorian case in Della. That's where an allegation was made around repeated misconduct. It was investigated by the director, who undoubtedly was conflicted in the process. The investigation went nowhere. When it went to VCAT, $130,000 in damages was awarded just as general damages because of the impact that it actually had on the person. Can I say Abdullah's case is not far away from the $10,000 in actual facts that was this other case, which shows how absurd the case was. Yeah. But what Abdullah's case, Kirkos and Abdullah, did concentrate on is when you have an allegation of sexual harassment, the, the issue of conflict of who investigates is a very real issue. And the fact that this is such a significant nature to the person concerned, you really should have an external and skilled investigator undertake it. They didn't. And that's where the damages came from. And the damages would have been significantly less if it had been investigated and then dealt with. But it was a quasi-victimisation claim then by the failure to actually do that. And I thought we should go back to the Oracle, <laughs> which is Richardson and Oracle, which was a judgment of, Frank, of Buchanan's who was in the, in the federal court to start with. Biggest precedent case of sexual yeah, harassment. Yeah, which dealt with a skilled professional person of non-touch sexual harassment yeah. but of repeated innuendo and sexualised commentary, had an enormous impact on this woman. She resigned because of it and Frank Buchanan said, look, the tariff is $13,000 as a top but we must align this with the common law. We can no longer look at sexual harassment as a, something lesser. Yep. And he awarded $100,000 in Which general damages. Yeah. yeah. And he also did $30,000 in economic damage because she resigned. So he yep. started to acknowledge the common law method of assessment of damages, which is economic loss, medical loss, both past and future. Mm-hmm. So it's expanded what the scope was. And aggravated damage occurs when someone does something and they know it's wrong and they've been told not to do it. 
And just to finish this off in this awards, there has now been much more significant cases in Oric language, and it is not uncommon to see with a non-touch-based sexual harassment to be over 100,000, and for a touch-based sexual harassment, trying to kiss, pressing themselves on people in excess of $200,000, okay? Yeah. That's just the general damages. Now, if the person is unable to work thereafter, then what you look at is an actuarial table of the loss the person will suffer from being unable to work. If it's for the rest of their life, it could be a $2 million, $3 million claim. Yeah. So the world has changed, and I want people to understand that. The last case I want to talk about is there are very rare occasions mm. where sexual harassment is raised um, as a method of attack. In other words, it didn't occur. It's a false claim, but it's a method of preventing performance management. Or, oh, yeah. So which is the Shea and True Energy case in the past. Can I just say, when someone tells a lie, a lie is serious misconduct, okay? But courts are most reluctant. This is what Shea and True Energy said in Court of Appeal. We don't want to create law that prevents people from making yeah. complaints because yeah. most complaints around bullying, harassment, sexual harassment are in part real and other part perception. Yeah. So sometimes the answer will be, no, it did happen, but that's not sexual harassment. Or you perceive that happened, but that's actually objectively no one else would see that. So in those ones, it's not misconduct. It's yeah. actually proper and it's an appropriate thing to raise a complaint. But where through CCTV or some other means you're able to demonstrate what the person is saying is an absolute lie. Now, remember, that's a brick and short test. Yeah, it's, it's a very high threshold. Very, very high threshold. You've got to be satisfied on reasonable evidence that what that person said could not be true, yeah. at that stage you jump to the stage of dishonesty, at that stage it show cause why the person shouldn't be terminated. Yeah, but it's not just that it wasn't true that they've then brought the complaint vexatiously, knowingly that they've done so. So It's got to be for an ulterior motive. Yeah, well. like the court's going to view that through a very narrow lens because, yeah. like you said, it's already so difficult for someone to make one of these complaints. They don't want to make it more difficult for victims, genuine yeah. victims, yeah. And so what it said in Shame True Energy is where someone makes up a complaint to execute an ulterior purpose, mm -hmm. at that stage you've reached the lie threshold, yeah. but it will be very rarely happened. So I just thought I'd raise that for the people who want to discuss that issue. So let's try this out on a practical problem. Yeah, just before we move on, though, just a reminder that all the changes around sexual harassment are coming into effect on the 6th of March, so pretty soon. Yeah, and this case fleshes that out a little bit, so off yeah. you go. <laughs> <laughs> I know, we're back up here again. <laughs> That's the chip yeah, no. yeah, it's like the audience. There we go. <laughs> Somehow worked as a dentist, Claire. <laughs> a new online video streaming service in Australia selling only Australian content. Their offering allowed payment through PayPal, Apple Pay and usual credit card payment. It was repetitive, high-volume work. She worked in an open office setting. There were 12 people who worked around her. Her boss, Trojan, worked in an office nearby. Everyone working around her were women, mostly from backgrounds where English was a second language. That's Donna good. had only worked at Ausdrama for six months. She was 23 and undertaking a part-time undergraduate degree at Swinburne University in fashion and clothing design. She had previously worked as a hairdresser and described her style as boho. I can't believe you know that word. <laughs> Trojan was age 37. He was head of finance, a tough job. Heading finance in a startup is always tough. He built good systems and liked his people. He tried to know something about each person and engage them. Here's something about Donna 
was her interest in fashion. He didn't profess any knowledge or skills. He just asked about what interested her and would listen. Donna welcomed his interest. Things changed a little after Christmas 2022. He commented a few times on her clothes and her style, always kind. Comments like, really like what you've done with that shirt. You look great. His comments become more focused on her attractiveness and increasingly risque. On one occasion, one of her work colleagues, Ruth, said to him and from the others, she's just a kid, Trojan. Anyone would think she's your girlfriend. No more, okay? Ruth laughed to ease the tension. Trojan laughed and Donna blushed and laughed. Later that day, Trojan called Donna into his office. He sat beside her and said, poor old Ruth, you are safe with me. I care about you and want to you to succeed. I have your back. As he said this, he looked straight into her eyes, placed his hands on her knee and smiled, a very soft smile. She made excuses for leaving quickly, saying, thanks, I understand, but she didn't understand. She felt violated and awkward. She went home. Ugh. Okay. <laughs> All right. So that answers the first question. Um, was Trojan's behaviour sexual harassment? So let's go back to the definition. Okay. Yeah. So was it unwelcome sexual advance? Yes. I think the last part was definitely the sexual advance. Was it a request for sexual favours? No, but no, implicitly but it maybe. have to be. But was it unwelcome conduct of a sexual nature? Absolutely. Yeah. And can I just say, I know you said the last bit was definitely, but depending on the situation, the first bit where he just commenting about her clothes could also be sexual harassment. It depends on the person being subjected to it and how they no, no, I agree. Because it's, it's a subjective test and I think that's what people forget. Like I've done so many investigations where someone said I was being nice, I was complimenting them, how is that sexual harassment? Can I just say the, the classic test is you, you find, you say there's a room of 12 people, yeah. who else did you say it about? And if it's only the young girl <laughs> with a, you know, the deep cleavage, then you're in a bit of trouble. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's the case in nearly every case we deal yeah. with where this happens, Okay. The other thing to remember with all forms of sexual harassment is it works in two ways, and I know you've heard me say this before. One, it grows quite quickly. Yeah. But the person's ability to stop it decreases quite quickly because mm. their self-esteem drops to the floor. Yeah. But there's also some real risk around this because Ruth has actually called him out and yet he still does it and he goes further. So unquestionably it is sexual harassment. Yeah. So I just thought we'd ask the next question is, well, could Donna make a successful workers' compensation claim? And the answer is absolutely. Yeah. Okay, she didn't come back to work, just say this um, online service, this business had a remuneration around about four to five million. Gee, that's, a, that's around about a three or $400,000 premium whack yep. over the three-year cycle or five years if you're in New South Wales and Queensland. So, five years. Yeah, so this is, a, this is a big whack if you get it wrong. Especially because it's, it comes down to the worker's perception as well, which makes it even trickier. So definitely the insurer would accept this claim. Oh, there's, there's no defence at all to it. It happened during the course of work. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing to suggest that anything else caused it. And other people witnessed the behaviour yeah, too. Yeah, so it's hard, isn't it? Yeah. Would Donna have a successful sexual harassment or general protections claim? Yeah, I believe so. Like he's definitely subjected her to this behaviour. She could probably claim it against the business too. They didn't do enough to step in. That's right. And remember from if this were to happen after March, yeah. then it would be, Positive duty. Yes. Prohibited. Hostile work environment. Yeah, well. hostile work environment is difficult here because it's all directed at her. Yeah. Yeah, so and, maybe. But it doesn't, it just has to be if you have an environment where someone, a reasonable person would feel uncomfortable and Bruce felt uncomfortable. Yeah, no, you're right. So we've got enough there. It's a really easy to substantiate claim. It's witnessed. Yeah. A lot of sexual harassment isn't witnessed. So we're just trying to about practicalities of it here. Yeah. So it's a. It's a jump-up start is my answer. You, yeah. you definitely bring it and you use federal legislation, not state-based legislation. 
Yeah. Okay. So it breaches absolutely everything that's there. You can't fail. And a, a good plaintiff's lawyer would bring it as a sexual harassment's claim. They wouldn't bring it as, as an general adverse protection. general protection. Wouldn't general protections not be so much the adverse action but the fact that it's discrimination? Yeah, it, yeah. Would, yeah, it would be. It's just the difficulty is the damages are much and greater. Lot lower and general protections, yeah. 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 So you, you go for that. So this, if you went this path, she just say she wasn't able to go back for a couple of years to work because of the damage. She dropped out of a course. I think that's the next question, actually, and she dropped out of a course. I don't think there's any. Questions. Yeah, no, that's right. <laughs> oh, <laughs> anyway, goodness, yeah. Could Donna seek a stop harassment order? Yes, she could. Yes. Okay. That's but she wouldn't go for that because you'd go for the other one to get more damages. That's right. And it could go through the courts. Yeah, so yeah. stop order gives you a kick on to the next stage yeah. to the federal court. So, yes, she could if she wanted to. Not doesn't preclude her going off to sexual harassment claim in the no, it federal doesn't. jurisdiction. But well, you probably wouldn't do it because she's already left work. And also there's not. It doesn't really do much. It's like a stop bullying order. They probably just re well, it. Could, but what it could do is get Trojan kicked out of the office. Oh, uh, <laughs> uh, I reckon they'll just redeploy him like they do with bullying yeah, orders. Yeah, they do. Anyway, you wouldn't oh, do it. Yeah. She's gone. She's off work. She's going to make a damages claim. And what looking at damage? what her loss is, I'd say her general damages are about a, around about eighty to $120,000 at this stage. Yep. Economic loss probably at around about $50,000, medical and like twenty or thirty thousand dollars. That's if you're not prosecuted under safety law. That's just if you make a damages claim. What happened? And she could be separately prosecuted under safety. He could be separately yeah, prosecuted under sure. safety law. So with the economic loss, Andrew, this is a clearly a part-time job. She's that's not actually what her career will be. Say she can't return to this industry, but she can work in like fashion, which is what she wants to do. Will that reduce the amount of yeah? It will mitigate it, but she's dropped out of a course. Oh, yeah, true. Yeah, this has destroyed her life. So the other argument is maybe she can't get on with her life and she would have earned seventy, eighty, ninety thousand dollars $90,000 and therefore her economic loss claim grows. That's true because yeah. it will depend yeah. on... But that's consequential. Loss, it's yeah. harder to actually measure. But I, yeah. So I'd say her claim is probably worth about $150,000. That's just for, you know, for some people... At this people, point in time. At this point in time. It could grow as well and it's yeah. likely to grow if there's more medical damage. There you go. So don't sexually harass. <laughs> that's <laughs> right. That's <laughs> but look, thanks very much today. I'm sorry we went through going through very old stuff with you. But it's, it's always relevant. Yeah, I think it's important up. and it seems to have lost a bit of its its focus recently. In this case yeah. we saw in VCAT showed that anybody can make the mistake of it. Yeah. Okay. Right. Thanks for Next watching. Next week, see you later. Give thumbs thumbs up. up. See you Bye. later. Bye-bye.